101, where we live in faith every day. This is Going Online, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Abraham. shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine and then the prophet answers his own question them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast for precept must be upon precept precept upon precept line upon line line upon line here a little and there a little Curious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend about this study, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word, line upon line. Yeah, so we are up to Luke chapter 16, and what I want to do, uh, we'll just open with a word of prayer, and then just get a little bit of background before we get into Luke 16. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, great God Almighty, we come before you ever so grateful, Father, that you have put in our hearts a desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to hunger and thirst for the milk and the meat of your word. Father, please be with us as we study the gospel according to Luke. Please uh, deepen our understanding. Please deepen our faith. Please uh, deepen, Father, our conviction to walk in the ways of the Lord. We thank you, Almighty God, and we ask these things in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So we are up to Luke chapter 16. And, uh, you know, I, I always say the Bible is not like Twitter. So with Twitter, you can just take a little phrase and, and that's it. That's what it means, 140 characters or 280 characters, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, they try to say what they want to say in that, those, those few characters. Uh, this is the opposite of the Bible. You can't just take a verse in the Bible or a passage in the Bible and, and think that you know what it means. Uh, this represents God's mind, and, and we have to make sure that we, we are reading it in context. So we are in Luke chapter 16, and uh, before we get to Luke 16, I just want to remind you of the context. And in order to have the context for Luke 16... We need to go back where we were a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke 12, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they tread one upon another, a really big crowd that had gathered around Christ, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all. So now he's teaching his disciples when he sees all of these people following him. He says, Beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. So this is the teaching. 
And he's now going to really make sure that his disciples understand the risk of hypocrisy and just how easy it is as one who claims to follow Christ or one who claims to be religious, how easy it is to slip into hypocrisy. That is to say, we appear one way, we appear on the outside one way, but there's another reality taking place, and I should say taking over internally. And so he's telling his disciples now, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really preparing you to, to walk with me and to serve me, but if you're going to serve me, you need to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. You need to be careful of hypocrisies. We need to keep that in mind, because all of these passages since Luke 12, coming up to Luke 16, and even when next week when we're in Luke uh, 17, God willing, it's all about this. Beware of hypocrisy. And then we were in Luke 13, and Luke 13, verse 1, it says, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the other Galileans, because they suffered such things? And then he told, told them, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is in the context of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of hypocrisy. The whole nation of Judah were, were a set of hypocrites, were becoming hypocrites because of the leadership in Judah. And so they all have to repent and come to a, a true relationship with God. Now, in the context, again, of his teaching his disciples, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he now begins a series of, of teachings or a series of parables to really bring out this risk of hypocrisy and to make sure that the disciples understand it. The first one here is in Luke 13, 6, where he spoke this parable. So he just telling them, he's making up a story to teach a lesson. This is the, a rabbi with his disciples. And so he's using these uh, made-up stories in order to teach a eternal truth to his disciples. So he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. So this is when we had covered Luke 13, and we understand that the fig tree is Israel. But in any case, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a real story. He's, he's just making up this story that a man had a fig tree, and then he's teaching a lesson based on that. And then in, in Luke 13, 15, when he went to heal this woman and the leader of the synagogue took exception, he called, called the leader out in verse 15. The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrite! Doesn't each one of you loose on the Sabbath, loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And so he's teaching his disciples, beware of hypocrisy. And now he's calling out the leader of the synagogue. You hypocrite! Then in Luke 13, 21, he says, you know, how shall I... Uh, what analogy can I give you to understand what the kingdom is like, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel? What is it like? And then in verse 21, after warning his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he says in verse 21, Luke 13, that the kingdom is like leaven, which a woman took. So first it's like a, a mustard seed, which a man took and cast in his garden. And then it's also like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole thing was leavened. Beware of this leaven. It is so destructive, it's so insidious, it's so secretive in its effect, but ultimately it takes over. Beware. Then in uh, verse 23, 
the, Pharaoh, the disciples understood what he was saying. And so one of the disciples says to him in verse 23, Lord, is it only a few that are going to be saved? So if this thing just takes over the way that you explain, are there only few that will be saved? And then he said unto them that they must strive to enter in at the straight gate. This is not going to be easy because many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and will not be able. So will few be saved? The answer is yes. Only few will be saved. Because many are going to try, but because of hypocrisy, they will not be able to enter in. When once the master of the house, verse 25, has risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I don't know from where you come. I, I don't know you. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think this is the most, one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. That Christ is making it clear that many are going to try, but because of leaven, of hypocrisy, they are, they're going to ruin themselves. And they are not going to enter it. So he's telling his disciples, beware of this leaven, and you make sure you do all you can to enter in. Because, verse 28, there shall be, not there may be, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out, then in Luke 14, verse 11, which is really now the essence of all this teaching. So he's, he's bringing his disciples along and he's schooling them. They're, he's their rabbi and he's schooling them. And really the essence of all this teaching is now in Luke 14, verse 11. For whosoever exalts himself, and this is after he explained the situation at the, at the dinner, when they're all striving for position, and then he says to them, to his disciples, whoever exalts himself will be humiliated. Whoever exalts himself will be humiliated. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So, so they need to understand that the world is upside down. And God, when, when the kingdom of God comes, the world is going to put, be put right side up. So whoever is at the top in an upside down world, when the world is put right side up, they will be at the bottom. And those who humble themselves and who are at the bottom, when the world is put right side up, they will be at the top. And so he teaches his disciples that the first will be last and the last will be first because the world is upside down. And he's coming to correct that. And he says in verse 12 of Luke 14, Then said he also to them that bade him, <clears throat> When you make a dinner, so those who had invited him, and then all the uh, people are uh, vying for position, because you know they invite important people, and uh, then they get in these important positions, and then those people will do them a favor, and it's all politicking. So now he's teaching the, the, the people, the Pharisees, a lesson. And he says, uh, verse 12, he said to those who invited him, When you make a dinner or a supper, do not call your friends, nor your brethren, nor your kinsmen, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back. And a, a reward is given to you. So, you know, thanks for doing, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Don't do this is what Christ is saying. This is feeding your ego this is feeding your hypocrisy. Stop doing this. But he says instead, what should you do instead? Verse 13. But when you make a feast, 
Call the poor. Call the poor. And the maimed. And the lame. And the blind. And you shall be blessed. This is, this is an important teaching because when we get into Luke 16, he's going to expand on this. So that's why we have to, we have to uh, retain what the Lord says because these chapter breaks are artificial. The actual text does not have chapter breaks. So we have to keep in mind what the Lord is saying. So he's telling them, when you have a feast, call the poor. Don't call your friends, your rich neighbors. Call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot reward you. But you shall be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. So you're striving for the finish line. The finish line is the resurrection. So keep the resurrection of the just in mind and strive for that. And if you use your wealth to bless those who are disadvantaged, then at the finish line, you're going to be blessed. Those, those that are disadvantaged will remember how you bless them. And remember, the world is upside down. So these people who are at the bottom of the pyramid, when God uh, reverses everything and puts, puts, it, puts the world right side up, these people will be at the top. You don't know who you're actually inviting. And you will be rewarded because they will remember your kindness to them. Then said he unto him, verse uh, 16 of Luke 14. So again, he's just he's using these stories to teach a higher... So, so they're fictional stories to teach an eternal reality. So he says here in verse 16, he said unto him, A certain man had a great supper and invited many. And then he goes on to say that, you know, they, they had different excuses why they couldn't come. And so he went into the, he told his servants, go into highways and byways and invite those people. Now, this didn't really happen. This is all allegorical. This is all a fictional story. But he's setting it up so that he can teach an eternal truth. And then in verse 26 of Luke 14, he makes it clear. If any man comes to me and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yeah, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. So there's all these crowds want to be want to be his disciple, and he's not interested. Because he's saying, this is serious. I, I am about to battle the devil to replace his kingdoms with the kingdom of God, and I'm bringing around, I'm surrounding myself with disciples who will not be uh, stricken with the disease of hypocrisy. That is how the devil works. He gets inside the hearts of men. And once they are compromised, once they are hypocrites, they don't want to be exposed. And so the devil now has them as puppets, and he can manipulate them. And Christ is just not... This is real. The kingdom of God is real, and it is coming, and it is going to put down all the kingdoms of this world. And God is surrounding himself with real disciples who are willing, who, who get it. They, they have a vision of what God is doing. And they are, they, they are very clear that Jesus Christ is their highest priority. And even if that means losing their own life, so be it. Because they understand the reality of the kingdom of God that is coming. And so he makes it very clear. Uh, if you are a hypocrite, you cannot be my disciple. And this is the whole teaching that he has to his disciples from Luke chapter 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's going to destroy many. Make sure it doesn't destroy you. Then last week we were in Luke 15. And uh, this is when 
he began to eat, or the, the sinners and the publicans began to eat with him, and the Pharisees noted this, and in verse 2 of Luke 15, they murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So eating with people uh, demonstrated your affinity with them, your alliance with them, and that's why the Pharisees were very careful about who they ate with. But Christ ate with the publicans and sinners, and they they well, he must be a sinner himself. And then he begins to teach. And in verse 4 of Luke 15, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? So he's making it very clear that he has a higher purpose than ego gratification. He has a higher purpose than just exalting himself, which is what the Pharisees were doing. His purpose is to recover the lost. His purpose is to be the good shepherd that they were supposed to be, that they failed in doing. So he starts off with this, uh, this allegory or this story, this fictional story of um, a shepherd having a hundred sheep and losing one. Then he goes on in verse 8 to another story, a fictional story, of a woman having two pieces of silver and losing one, or ten pieces of silver and losing one, and how she really strives to find that one and the joy, the same way the, the, the shepherd has such joy when he finds the sheep that was lost, the woman has such joy when she finds the piece of silver that was lost. And he says that this is the kind of joy that is in heaven. This, is, this gives you an insight into how God rejoices with the angels when a sinner repents. So this is the will of God. Then in, in verse 11, he makes up another story, another fictional story, that a man had two sons. And, and one of the sons said, give me the inheritance, and, and became the prodigal son, and went off and ruined himself. But then he came to his senses and came back. And this is the immediate context now of Luke 16. And in Luke 15, verse 32, the brother, the older brother, who remained with the father and did as he was told, and uh, was not like the prodigal son, uh, when he came back to the house, he hears this partying, and the fatted calf has been killed, and... He's wondering, what on earth is going on here? He wasn't aware of any big invitations going out or any scheduled party. And so one of the servants explains that your brother has come back. And he is furious. He is really upset about this, which shows the opposite of the will of God or the, or the heart of God. That from the, from, the 19, from the hundred sheep, when the one that is lost was found, there is great joy. And the ten pieces of silver, when the one that was lost is found, great joy! And now there are two brothers, and the one that was lost is found, and the brother is angry. He, is not, he does not demonstrate the heart of God. He is demonstrating really the, the hypocritical heart of the Pharisees. And so, the father then tries to explain to the older brother in verse 32 of Luke 15, that it was appropriate that we should have a party, that we should celebrate, that we should make merry and be, be glad. For this, your brother, was dead, but he's alive again. And he was lost, and he's found. So let's have joy over the fact that your brother has come back to life. Your brother who was lost has been found. But no, he was furious. Just as the Pharisees, when, when the publicans and the sinners are repenting, and coming to Christ and having an interest in having the gospel preached to them, the Pharisees are furious, instead of rejoicing that that which is lost has been found. 
So now with all of that as context, we come into Luke chapter 16. And he said also unto his disciples, remember he's teaching his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And so as a rabbi, he's using various fictional stories so that they can get they can begin to see with the eyes of God. See, he, he wants them to see things through the lens of righteousness and not through outward appearance. So now uh, he teaches his disciples again that there was a certain rich man. Now, this is a fictional story. He's just making up this story so that the disciples, their perception will be altered. There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So this uh, rich man hires this employee to manage his affairs, but he hears now that the employee is, is doing a terrible job. And, and rather than look after his interests, he's wasting his goods, and so his wealth is diminishing. You can imagine how furious this man would be. So verse 2, and he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of you? Give an account of your stewardship. So I, I want to now, give, give me the records. What, what have you done with my wealth? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may be no longer steward. In other words, you're going to be fired. <laughs> I, I, I need to see this. And if, if, if what I hear is true, then you're out. And of course, it is true. Uh, and so the steward knows he's going to be fired. So in verse 3, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I'm going to be fired. I can't dig. So, you know, maybe he's one of these men that has no physical fitness. Uh, he's had sort of a white-collar job all his life. And so to now have to go and do a blue-collar job, he doesn't have the fitness to do that. And so he said, I can't dig. And to beg... I'm ashamed. So I have too much pride. I've, I've sort of lived in a um, lofty way, and I've got, kind of won the respect of people around me. So uh, <laughs> to then go to those people and beg, I, I can't do that. So I'm, I'm in a hard place here. I, mean, I don't want to work uh, physical labor, and I'm certainly not going to beg. What should I do? So he kind of brainstorms now, and then he comes up with an idea in verse 4. I am resolved what to do. I, I know what I'll do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, so when I'm fired, I, I figured out what I'll do so that they may receive me into their houses. So he, he realizes that his employer is about to let him go. So when the employer lets him go, he has figured out a strategy that those that he has relationships with will have to look after him. So verse 5. So he called everyone, everyone of his Lord's debtors unto him. So he's, he's, he's not taking any chances. He's going to line them all up. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much do you owe unto my Lord? And it's a funny question, right? He's the steward. Instead of going to the first and saying, Look, you owe this much to my Lord, it, it appears that he has no idea. So he has to go to the debtor and say, What, what is it again? How, how much do you owe my Lord? So, so he goes to the debtor to find out how much uh, is owed. And the debtor says, a hundred measures of oil, which is a significant amount. This is a significant debt. And he said unto him, a hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So look, 
I have to put, I, I'm going to put this account together, uh, this balance sheet of what's owed, and I'm going to give it to the master. Instead of putting down 100, I'm going to put down 50. So you are, look, you're, 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 you're going to be in a much stronger position financially, so you can just write off the 50 measures of oil and just owe 50. Then he said to another, and how much you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take your bill and write 80. And now listen to verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. So when, when the Lord comes and he looks at what this man has done, he's like, wow, this is, this is clever. This is really, you have amazing foresight. This, this is remarkable. You were in a jam. You were, you were about to be impoverished and embarrassed, and you have figured out a way out of, the, out of your situation. So he commended him because he had done wisely. And now listen to this. For the children of this world are in their generation, this is their time, in their generation, they are wiser than the children of light. So the children of light have a foolishness about them. The children of light, really, these are the children of the covenant. They, they, there's a foolishness about them. And he, he sets up this story to highlight this foolishness. And so he, he then concludes the story in verse 9 of Luke 16. And he says, And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon or the wealth. Make to yourself friends of the wealth of unrighteousness, that when you fail they may receive you into everlasting habitations. What is this all about? Well, so he's making up this story to teach his disciples a lesson. And he shows the shrewdness, the uh, cleverness, the foresight of this steward that was doing a poor job managing his master's wealth. But the steward could foresee the future. And based on his perception of the future and the way things were going to go, he figured out how he could live in the future. So, so the past is the past. Okay, He was an unjust steward. That's the past. And the present is the present. He's about to be fired. But he's going to craft his life in such a way that he's sowing into the future. And so he realizes that in the future, he is going to be at the mercy of his Lord's debtors. So he does them all favors. He takes the power that he has right now in the present. He takes the, the decision-making authority, whatever abilities he has in the present, and he plants seeds for the future. So now when the, the master fires him, he has something, uh, you know, he has uh, investments in all of these people. And they are beholden to him. They are obligated to him. So now he needs a place to say, hey, remember you owed 100 measures of oil? Well, let me not say it too loudly. Psst. Remember you owe 100 measures of oil to my master. But you want, I'm going to put down 50. Well, I, I need a place to stay for a month. Oh, yeah, come on in. No problem. But please don't disclose that I actually owe 100 measures of oil. And then, he, then, when, then when that month runs out, then he goes to the next one. And says, remember you owed 100 measures of wheat, and, and I wrote 80? Well, you know, I need some food. So can you look after me for a while? Okay, sure, yes, just, 
you know, because if, if it's disclosed that you're just, I'm already fired, but if it's disclosed that you were dishonest as well, what's going to happen to you? And so he sets up these sets of these obligations. So now he doesn't have to worry. He can't, he can't dig and he's not going to beg. And now he doesn't have to. So then Christ uses this as an example to say that the children of light are stupid. The children of light, the people of the covenant, they don't have the foresight that this unjust steward had. Because if we had the foresight, remember, let's, let's go back to Luke 1. So we, we began in Luke 1. In Luke 1, verse 52, just to understand the power of the kingdom and what's coming. In Luke 1, verse 52, it says that he has put down the mighty from their seats. There's going to be this complete reversal of fortune. He has put down the mighty from their seats, from their thrones, and exalted them of low degree. The world is upside down right now, and he's coming to put it right side up. So those who are poor are going to be exalted. The gospel, the poor have the gospel preached unto them, the good news preached unto them, that this upside down world is going to be right side up. And the poor will be at the top and the, the rich will be at the bottom. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So what Christ is teaching his disciples, and this is why he said to the Pharisees, when you have a dinner, don't just invite your rich friends. Invite the poor. Invite the maimed. Invite the blind. Because these people who are unfortunate in the Babylonian system, in the kingdom of the devil, or the kingdoms of the devil. When those kingdoms are put down, and these unfortunate people who have repented and who have accepted Christ, they will be enthroned. They will be in a, they will be exalted in positions of high degree. So everything that you know today, <laughs> your employer today will be nothing. And he, he's gonna have to fire you because he's gonna lose his own kingdom. And you need to invest in the future. You need to invest in the people that are going to be exalted in the future. And so this is what he's explaining to the disciples. He says in verse 10 of Luke 16, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. So, so if you, are, you understand this instruction, that when, with the wealth that you have, when you're putting on a dinner, Go and invite the poor. So he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So you need to understand here that God is testing us how we use our resources to see if he gives us more resources, what is our character really like? And then he says in verse 11, if you therefore, <clears throat> if you therefore, or if therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will commit to you or trust the true riches? There are true riches that when the kingdom of God comes, there's going to be wealth beyond measure. God is recruiting future kings and priests. And, and not only that, it's not just kings and priests to rule this world or this planet. That Revelation 21 and 22 show us 
that God the Father himself is going to come to earth. You know, the, the devil wanted to go to heaven and overthrow God in heaven. He says, I will be like the Most High, and I'm going to go to heaven and, and, and be the highest. So the devil desires to go to heaven, and he's put that desire through deception into the hearts of men. So men with the devil want to go to heaven. But Revelation 21 shows us that God's desire is to come to earth. And he will dwell on earth. He will, he will make his headquarters, his throne, will be established on earth. And so earth will be the center of the entire universe. There's going to be a new heavens, and, and this is what scientists don't understand. They're looking at planet earth. And they're looking at this vast universe as much as they can grasp with their technology. And they cannot see life anywhere except Earth. And yet Earth is this speck in the universe. It just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's a speck in the solar system. It's a speck. The solar system is a speck in our galaxy. Our galaxy is a speck in a universe full of galaxies. And they're scratching their heads and they don't get it. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Unless you understand that from Genesis 1, God's desire was that there would be a unity, an integration between the heavens and the earth. And that God would fellowship with man on earth. And man would work in a complementary way with God. But of course, Adam failed and the whole plan was sidetracked. And we're going through a whole process from Genesis to Revelation to get back to where Adam was originally. That God will come to earth and fellowship with man, and the whole universe, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and earth will be the center of the future universe. This is what the Bible says. And this, this only the Bible can make sense of the universe. Scientists are scratching their head, and they can't make any sense out of it. And so, these, these true riches, not just riches of the earth, but riches of the whole universe, it's God's desire to give this to mankind. It's God's desire to give this to his, to his people. But we must have character. We cannot be like the devil. Selfish, self-centered. And so he's testing now to say, with the wealth that you have now, whose character do you have? Do you have the heart of God? Or do you have the heart of the devil? So I'm going to give you a little bit of capability now and see what you do with it. Because... Whatever you do with it, whether it's just a little bit, it's going to reveal your true character. And so with this little bit, we get a, uh, a, it's like a microscope. We get to see your DNA. And we get to see how we're really wired. And so if you are of the heart of God and the desire to bless his people, God will see that he can bless us with the true riches. So he says here, um, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And then in verse 12 he says, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So right now, you know, the wealth that we have, anything that you, you have, uh, any wealth at all that we have, it's not ours. In a sense, you could say it's on loan to us. Because our whole life is temporary. It's not until we have eternal life and something is given to us that that will really be ours. We can say that this is mine. But there's nothing that we can say is ours now if our own life, we have no control over it. We, any of us could die at any time. And so everything we have is temporary. In, in fact, Psalm 24, verse 1, 
says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. So when he says here in verse 12, if you haven't been faithful in that which is another man's, and that which is another man's is God's. Everything belongs to God. And whatever wealth we have, whatever, quote, mammon we have, God is looking to see what we do with it. So if we're not going to be faithful with the temporary wealth that we have, who shall give you that which is your own? So when we come into eternal life, whatever is given to us then, that is truly ours for eternity. Then he goes on in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. So this uh, unjust steward figured out, okay, you're not my master anymore. So I don't care about you. I'm going to now set my, now I'm my master. I have to look after myself. So this unjust steward wasn't confused. If he was uh, conflicted, then it's like, oh, I can't really do that because he's my master and he's done all these good things for me. But at the same time, I have to look after myself. He wasn't conflicted. He's like, you're not my master anymore. Now I'm going to look after myself. So no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. So there's two masters here. Satan said to Christ in Luke 4, he took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all of this because it's been given to me. And I can give it to whoever I choose. So the kingdoms of this world, Satan is the master of the kingdoms of this world. Christ is the master of the kingdom of God. And so these are in contradiction to each other. And we cannot serve both. So we have to be, we cannot be conflicted. We have to be very, very clear in our minds. Who do we serve? We either serve the Lord Jesus Christ, or we serve the devil and ourselves, our selfish selves, which is that we are slaves to the devil if we do not have the Holy Spirit. And so it's impossible, Christ is saying, it's impossible to love Christ and wealth, to love Christ and the devil, and serve both. We cannot do it. To love Christ and self. That's why I said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to be very clear who your highest priority is, and even hate your own life in comparison. Then he says, you cannot, it is impossible, you cannot do this. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. So don't... And it's not to say that wealth is wrong. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's the love of wealth that's the problem. The love of money that's the root of all evil. So it's your desire. So if you have wealth, but you have... Abraham was a very wealthy man. And yet it was very clear that he didn't worship wealth. When he was in conflict with his uh, nephew Lot, because they were both very wealthy, and their servants were beginning to collide with each other, uh, Abraham was very clear, look, Lot, you choose first, whatever you like, and you take the best land, and I'll take whatever you don't choose. So he was not covetous. And there's, again, uh, nothing wrong with wealth. Jacob was very wealthy. The many servants of God were very wealthy. This is, wealth is not the problem. It's serving wealth. It's putting a priority on wealth over God. This is the problem. When wealth becomes your God, this is the problem. So he's saying, look, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now, verse 14, the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. So he's speaking to his disciples, but he's in earshot 
of the Pharisees. And Luke is making it very clear. The Pharisees are covetous. That's why Christ said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They are appearing righteous, but their heart is full of wickedness. They're appearing like they serve God, but they really serve wealth. And they're inviting each other to their homes and they're positioning themselves and their constant agenda is how can they increase their wealth? How can they exalt themselves higher? And they are covetous. They, they want everything for themselves. So we are very clear. We have Luke in verse 14 gives us this insight into the heart of the Pharisees. They're hypocrites and they're covetous. They heard these things and they derided him. So they were very, uh, they're very uh, threatened. Whenever people are threatened, uh, they're going to attack. And so their position as the religious authorities is being threatened by Christ. And so they are insulting him. They're sneering at him. They're deriding him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men. So Christ didn't pull any punches. He's telling them straight. You are hypocrites. You justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. Beware from Luke 12. This is what this is all about. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So again, this world is upside down. And those that are at the top and are honored by men, this is because it's Satan's world. And Satan honors his own. And so these Pharisees who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the covenant people, they're getting all the, the Romans love them, the, they're just having all the honor. Because they've given themselves over to the devil. And they are not doing what God's law commands. He says, That which is highly esteemed, in a world that is upside down, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination. God abhors it. And God abhors these men. Is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. And so we see all of these um, prophets and, and, and the Torah being taught right up to John the Baptist. And then when Christ conquered the devil in Luke 4, then he began to preach the kingdom of God. So since this time, the kingdom of God has been preached and every man presses into it. That's why he says to them, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because of this thing called hypocrisy, because of the insidious effect of leaven that we have to fight against this and really strive with all our might to enter in at the straight gate. So those who really understand that the world is upside down, Christ is going to come and put it right side up. We are pressing into the kingdom. And he says, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. And so take note, Luke 16, verse 17, what Christ is saying here that the Torah, which has been laid down, it, it, it will not fail. Christ did not come, and he says in another place, that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. So it's easier. So <laughs> this is quite something. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. This is the power of God's word. God's word does not fail. Now, because they are covetous, and God knows what's in their heart, suddenly he just goes into this uh, 
uh, admonition in verse 18, which if we were there at the time and we knew these men, we would understand why he's doing this. But he says now in verse 18, Whosoever, any of you, puts away his wife and marries another, commits adultery. So you can imagine there must be some Pharisees there, religious leaders, who have done exactly this with their callous hearts, with their covetous hearts. They have one wife, but they see maybe this other woman is uh, more attractive or uh, just different looking, and they're tired of the wife that they have. And so they put her away in, in coldness and, and lead her to a life of uh, poverty. And then they turn now and marry someone else. And so we all know these men, We uh, well, that, last year he didn't have that wife, he got a new wife. But he's a religious leader, must be okay. And Christ just exposes them. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. This is uh, uh, just, uh, this is idolatry, really. Adultery is idolatry. So he commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. So Christ is really upholding here the honor of marriage and the high privilege it is to be married. And these men whose hearts are covetous, they are degrading marriage. And we see in Malachi uh, chapter 1, actually, the state that uh, the people of Israel fell into with respect to marriage and divorce. But this really shows their hearts, this callousness. And today we are living in a society in the Western world where uh, marriage means nothing. People, it's easy divorce, no, no fault divorce. It's so easy now to get a divorce and then to remarry. And Christ is making it very clear, if you do that, you've committed adultery. And if you marry a woman or you marry a man that's divorced and their spouse is still alive, you're committing adultery. So says the word of God. And so we have to understand this and repent. And certainly there are people who maybe they've done this and now they have children and certainly we don't want to be breaking up marriages but or breaking up families. But we must honor marriage. That marriage is the highest concept in the Bible. And every human being must honor marriage. And so in the West, as I say, we have this very liberal approach to marriage and we dishonor marriage. And then in the East, where mostly it's taken over by Islam, uh, the prophet, the quote-unquote prophet Muhammad teaches that uh, when a man divorces a woman, now suppose they realize they were, because a man to divorce in Islam, he just has to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times and they're divorced. There's no court, there's nothing, they just have to say that three times and they're divorced. So women are in a very vulnerable position. But if he says that, maybe he was really angry. He said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and he divorces the woman. If he changes his mind and he wants to remarry her, in Sharia law, the only way he can remarry her is if she marries another man, has sexual relations with that man, and then that man divorces her. Now she can come back to her original husband and he can marry her. So it's the exact opposite of what Jesus, of, of the holiness of marriage that Jesus Christ taught. So whether it's the West or the East, uh, Satan has, has led mankind to disparage marriage. And if we are going to have righteousness and do what God says, whether we're married or whatever state we're in, we must have the highest honor of the institution of marriage. Because ultimately, as it shows in Ephesians 5, marriage symbolizes the relationship that God has with mankind. Carrying on in Luke 16, verse 19. Now, 
he goes on to another story. And, and this story, in fact, is Lazarus and the rich man. And a lot of people will use this story to teach the concept of heaven and hell. And there is no such concept that people are going to heaven or people are going to burn in hell forever. Most of the Christian world teaches this, and they do not get it out of the Bible. This, this comes from Greek philosophy. It does not come from the Hebrew understanding of the Bible. So that's why I was saying we had to go back to understand that Christ, is as a rabbi, is teaching his disciples. And he's making up stories. These have been fictional stories. Because there's a lesson that he wants to draw out to his disciples. And so here in Luke 16, this is not reality. It's a fictional story that he's making up so that he can, he can just draw out the truth that the first will be last and the last will be first. That the world is upside down and those you see who are being exalted, they're going to be humiliated. And so that's what this story is about. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. So it was the kings who were in purple and it was the priests who were in fine linen. And so he's making it clear that these are the leaders of the community. They're clothed in purple and fine linen. And this certain rich man fared sumptuously every day. Remember, the Pharisees are covetous, and all they care about is wealth. And so Christ is now exposing them. They, live, they fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar, the opposite, the lowest, named Lazarus, which uh, in Hebrew is Eleazar, one of the... Uh, treasured servants of Abraham. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dog came and licked his sores. So he's setting up this imagery in our minds where, okay, there's the, the wealthy who uh, are the exalted that are an abomination to God, and then there's this lowly servant, Lazarus, who is it so impoverished that the, the dogs come and lick his sores? And so this now, if we if we were thinking, you know, the other stories, we see that the prodigal son was in such a horrible state, but he repented, and so he's going to be exalted. And the brother, who never had need of repentance, but his heart became hardened, he's going to be shut out. And so this is all about. Who, how God sees people, that on the surface, we might think, oh, the rich man is so wonderful and honorable. To God, he's an abomination. And the poor man, who looks like an abomination, to God, he's going to be exalted because of his heart and his repentance. But he desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came. He's such a, in such a sorry state that even the dogs come and just lick his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, no such thing ever happened. No such thing ever happened. This is just a, a story that he's making up, kind of playing into the common thoughts that, that the Greeks certainly had, and even the Jews would have these, these uh, concepts of the afterlife. And so he's just telling this story that uh, he was carried into the and Abraham, it's figurative language. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, and being in torment, he's being tortured. He's in torment. He sees Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. That's why uh, Christ said that the first will be last and the last will be first. 
and that when, when the disciple asked, are there few there be that saved? He said, you make sure you enter into the straight gate, because there will be gnashing and weeping of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves shut out. So this is just underlining this. And so he sees this, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Again, this is just figurative language. He's just trying to emphasize the, the contrast between this life and the future. And again, to underline the fact that you need to see things the way God does. And use your wealth to sow into the future. To, to the, the Lazaruses of today, look around you. And when you see Lazaruses, be kind to them. Because these Lazaruses are going to be exalted in the kingdom. And don't be fooled by wealth to think that you just have to look after yourself. He says, uh, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things. So you were unfaithful with the, the, the unrighteous mammon. And so who's going to give you is the true wealth. And likewise, Lazarus received evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix. And again, for these people who believe in heaven and hell, which the Bible does not teach, that uh, the, the Bible teaches quite the opposite, that it's all about the earth, and the, the, the meek will inherit the earth, and God is coming to earth, and the dead, the dead will be dead. But here, imagine if you do believe in heaven and hell. What joy will you have in heaven? when you can see your loved ones being tortured. So here we are in heaven, and we look down in hell, and you know, think of all your loved ones that have died and did not die in Christ. And think of your loved ones who will die, and, and it's unlikely that they will enter in at the straight gate. And if you believe that once they're dead, they go straight to hell, and then you die and you go to heaven. So here we are in heaven, and we look down in hell, and we see our loved ones being tortured forever and ever. How much joy are we going to have in heaven watching our loved ones being tortured? Does this make any sense to you? He goes up, so this is, just, this is just a story. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that will come from you. There's nowhere in the Bible where God endorses torture. Search the scriptures and see where God endorses torture. God endorses the death penalty. And so when people are wicked, there's the death penalty to take them out of society so that that, that, that disease doesn't spread in the society. But you will never find anywhere in the law where the punishment for someone is to torture. That does not come from God. And so imagine eternity, someone being tortured for eternity. What kind of God would do this? Not the God of the Bible. Verse 27, Luke 16, 27. Then he said, I pray you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. So, okay, so he won't send Lazarus to hell to uh, give him a little tip, tip of water in his, on his tongue. But he's now begging Abraham to send him to his father's house, he says, for I have five brethren. So this, again, is a, a language that the Jews would understand, that uh, Judah 
had five brothers. So, so Judah, the son of Israel, the son of uh, Jacob, Judah had five brothers. And so this is clearly talking about the Jews, the Pharisees, who, who believe they're so privileged. He says, For I have five brethren, send unto them, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torture, this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. So <laughs> you got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So Moses and all the prophets spoke of Christ. And if these Pharisees took Moses, they, they're standing up saying the law, the law, the law. But if they took the law seriously, it points to Christ. And if they search the prophets carefully, all the prophets point to Christ. So they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. <clears throat> so here, you know, they're so hard-hearted. But Lazarus died, and if Lazarus came back to life and went to them, then they would repent. And here Abraham says to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Wow. So their heart is their heart. And if their heart is perverse, and it's clear that it's perverse because they don't listen to Moses, although they parade Moses, they parade the scriptures up and down, but they don't listen to Moses and they don't listen to the prophets. So their heart is their heart. And even if one rose from the dead, Abraham is saying, it wouldn't make any difference. And we know that that's true because Christ himself rose from the dead and they still rejected him to this day. Now, that's how uh, Luke 16 ends. And I just want to, again, because some people take this one passage, they take it out of context, they're not reading it in the context from Luke 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the number of made-up stories that the rabbi Christ uses to his disciples to teach an eternal truth. And so this is just one of these stories, <clears throat> excuse me, one of these stories that he uses, I'll just get a drink of water here, excuse me. So this is just another one of the stories that he's using. So if you take it in context, he's just making up these stories so that he can get them to perceive things properly. And now let me just uh, go to a couple of scriptures just to underline this, uh, or to uh, negate this Greek philosophy about hell. Eternal. So, so the Greeks believed that mankind, through the influence of Plato, that mankind had a spirit in him that is eternal, and that when the, the whole purpose of life is to purify that spirit, because God is perfect, and, and God is this es perfect essence. And so when we die, the purpose of life is for the essence within us to go back to the perfect essence of God, and that's the whole notion of heaven. And that if we do not purify our soul, then we go to hell, and where we burn, where we burn forever. But the Bible says something very different. Romans 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That, that's what the wages of sin is. But, the opposite, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death means cessation of life. It's the opposite of life. It means to, to have life removed from you completely. That's death. The opposite is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Burning in hell forever is to live forever. Just that you're being tortured forever. But the Bible doesn't say you live forever through sin. The wages of sin is death. 
The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, it says, The living know that they shall die. So all of us who are alive today, we know that we will die. But the dead do not know anything. So when you're dead, you don't know anything. It's not that you're dead and you know that, oh, Abraham is in heaven and uh, Lazarus is in his bosom and I know this, but, but my brothers don't know it. And so if one rise from the dead and go to my brothers, I know that they'll repent. The scripture cannot be broken. It's very clear that the dead don't know anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And in Malachi 4, verse 3, it says, You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. So yes, there is hell in the sense that there is a fire, and, and in Jerusalem, at the time that Christ was on earth, there was the fire of Gehenna. And this was more or less the garbage dump. And it was, in, it was a, a fire that just kept on burning. And people would take their waste and just throw it into that fire. And that Gehenna pictured the lake of fire, which the wicked would be thrown into in the end, where they would just be burned up and they would die and cease to exist. And that's where we see Revelation 20, verse 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, where they will cease to live. The lake of fire will burn them up and they'll become ashes. And we'll just, uh, just in concluding, I just want to hint at Luke 17. Then, so he's continuing this, this uh, teaching. And in Luke 17, verse 1 and 2, he says, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. So, so he's, he's showing how all of these offenses of the Pharisees, how it's going to end for them, and, and, and how the uh, disciples must avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he turned, after telling this story about how it's going to end for the Pharisees, he says, it's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast, and he's cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. So these little ones, the Lazaruses of the community, do not offend them. In fact, use your wealth to bless them. And that then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack Luke 17. God willing, we'll unpack that next week. But that's Luke chapter 16. Hopefully, God willing, you uh, got a lot of benefit in just reading it line by line. And we have some of our brethren now that will, uh, and guests that will join us. So I'll get them on the line. And uh, in the meantime, I'll just uh, have a little musical interlude while I get our guests on the line. Stay tuned. Africa, America, Australia, God is calling here his voice. Oh, people of the earth, children of the universe, why can't you be? Faithful and true All that is done for you All that is brought you through Yet you found your own way And you chose not to pray 
Hi, this is Adrian. Who do we have on the line? Hey Stephen, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. Good to have you on the line. Just let me adjust my volume. Yeah, it should be gone now. How's that sound? Yeah, great, great. Yeah, great. So, uh, how are things in Jamaica? Uh, good. Good, good. So that was uh, Luke chapter 16. Were you able to uh, listen from the beginning? I caught all of Luke 16 and made some part of your recap book okay. I say last week. So. Great, great. The, the recap, uh, Brother Stephen, I went back to Luke 12, where uh, Christ introduced the notion to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and just showed how from, from Luke 12, because the chapters are really artificial, uh, and so from Luke 12, he's going through this series of teachings as the rabbi with his disciples, where he is really making up these different sto figurative stories so that he can teach them lessons to, to underline this teaching that they must be uh, um, aware or beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeah. And then that's how we then came into Luke, uh, Luke 16. So any, any comments or thoughts uh, that you have on, on Luke 16? Well, yes, I do have um, comments and thoughts. Um, uh, certainly like the way that um, how we have presented and keep the, the recap from the show the consistency um, that Jesus was really preaching against hypocrisy, um, which was right uh, in the, the life of the Pharisees. Um, specifically in Luke 16, again, another comment, um, the, the point that they made about Judah's five brothers, um, again, uh, it's so easy to miss these things. Um, I, never, I never picked it up. So even as you were speaking about it, I, I looked and yes, indeed, with Judah, Judah, they have um, five brothers. Um, so you can hear that that is speaking specifically of of Judah. Yes. Um, in terms of, yeah, that, that's very easy to me. Yeah, that's why it's so important that we read uh, we read line by line so that we don't miss these things. Very, very, very good. I think, uh, Sister Abinel, did I hear you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Hi there. Brother Stevens here as well. Hi. Hi, hi. Hello. Hello, yes. hi everyone. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, so Brother Stephen was just saying how important it is that we read line by line because there are things that we miss. For example, he said that uh, Judah had five brothers. And so that analogy that Christ was painting, he's making it clear who he's, who he's speaking about, who, who he's putting in the role of the, of the certain rich man. Yeah. Did, did you have any thoughts or comments, Sister Abinel? Yes. Um, towards the end, you mentioned, I don't know if it's down regarding the everlasting torture in hell. Yes. And most people believe that, especially in in Catholicism. Yes. And, um, and, and Protestants too, Protestant, Protestant, yeah. Protestant churches, they believe yes. that. Um, if you die and go to hell, you'll be tortured eternally. Yes. Is it everlasting torture in hell or is it eternal death? Some people don't understand the, the um, difference between 
Yeah, so if I understand the question correctly, we, we want to be very clear that death is, death is the cessation of life. But uh, yeah. Gehenna, the Gehenna fire in Jerusalem, it burned continually. So people would bring their, their refuse, they'd bring their waste, and they'd throw it in the fire, and, and it was just continually burning. But the, the waste burned up and disappeared, right? It became ashes. But the fire continued. And so the idea of everlasting fire, it's really fire till the end of the age. And so until everything is burned up, this fire will continue to burn until then the whole earth has been renewed and now the new heaven and new earth will be created. So you could say in a sense that the fire is an everlasting fire in the sense that it will last until the end of the age. But the people thrown into the fire will be burned up. At some point, they will be burned up. So totally. What happens to the man spirit? Um, because the Bible says that when we die, our spirit goes on to God who gave it. Yes. What happens to the man's soul and, and body? Okay. So there's a difference now between spirit and soul, right? The Bible makes it clear. I, I think it's Ezekiel 18. Uh, let me just quickly go there. Uh, Ezekiel 18, the Bible makes it very clear that the soul that sins, it will die. The soul, that is uh, nephesh, uh, that, that's, that's, so it's not so much we could say we have a soul as we would say we are a soul. And the soul that sins, it will die. Okay, So that's the soul. But now there is a spirit, Job makes this clear, that there is a spirit that God puts in man. And this spirit, it's, uh, it's from God, and in a sense, it's what activates the man. So God uh, puts this spirit in us, and it brings us to life. It's like sort of the, the breath of God in us brings us to life, and, and we become a living soul. So we are this living soul. The spirit of God in us animates us. The other thing that it does is it records everything about us. So every experience we have, and people have done this where they've tapped into the subconscious and people can recall things in detail from decades ago, because this thing is like a recorder. And so when we die, this spirit that's in us, it's not who we are, but it's in us, it's in, it, we are a soul and it's in us, it returns to God. And so this recording sits with God. And then we, are not, we don't exist without a body. In the resurrection, God is able to take that recording and recreate us perfectly. So that spirit, in a sense, acts like a mold of who we are. But it's not who we are. It's, it's the, 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 the uh, blueprint of who we are. And so... But many people misunderstand the difference between soul and body. The soul is the mind, the person's mind and the body, right? Exactly. Right. Well, yeah, the body and the, who we are. Right now, we are, you know, we, we are three souls on the line, right? So there's Brother Steve and yourself, myself. We are three souls on the line. All three of us have a spirit inside us that animates us and brings us to life and records everything we do. And so when we die, that it, it, uh, somebody described it once like a, uh, I don't know if you know these thumb drives or, or SD cards that have data, but they can't do anything until they're plugged into a computer. Once they're plugged into the computer, the computer can access the data and bring it to life. In the same way, this data, this, this SD card, it, it doesn't do anything without a body. And so it goes back to God with a full recording of who and what we are, and then God is able to give us a new body in the resurrection from that recording. Yeah. 
And Brother Stephen, I don't know if you wanted to comment. And Brother Stephen, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, your yeah. explanation seems spot on um, for the agent based on the scriptures. Um, and as this says in Genesis, when God created man, so he created man from the top and through the breath of life, man and man became yes. a living soul. Yes, very so good. How? So man became an effish and in other cases, um, we see in, for example, the story with Jacob and 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 Rachel, etc., where um, when they're leaving, says every soul, meaning all all of the humans, all of the persons, so we have to die very first six souls consistently as the entire being, so to speak, and not yes. us, uh, you know, this part of the being that separates from them when they die. Very good, very good, very good. Uh, Sister Avenel, hopefully that helps. Bring some clarity yes, there. Yeah. Yes. Oh, very good. A lot of people ask that question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the first part of Luke 16 was about the uh, unjust steward and how God says, uh, He says that uh, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he was wiser in his generation than the children of light. And so He's really saying to His disciples to be to be smart, to be shrewd, to be forward-looking, the way the unjust steward was. Any thoughts or comments on that? I wasn't there for the first verse of the, I was a bit late okay. in that room joining. Um, could you run that me again? Oh, if you don't mind me again. Sure, just uh, in the first part of Luke uh, 16, uh, Christ begins, a, so, so there's a series of um, figurative stories that he's making up to teach his disciples certain lessons. And in this one, it's about a rich man who had a steward, uh, someone who was to look after his wealth. But uh, some were telling the rich man that the steward was not doing a good job, that he was wasting his wealth. So the steward asked the, uh, the, the rich man asked the steward to come forward with an account of what he has done with his wealth uh, because he's going to be fired. And then the steward, realizing that he's going to be fired, goes out to the debtors of the, of the master and basically forgives them a significant portion of their debts so that they would be indebted to him, not just their master. So he tells one to cut his debt in half, another one he reduces it by 20%, so that when he is fired, he's able to call them, call, call in his favors with these people who owe him, who owe the master money. And um, the, the master was impressed that the steward was able to be so forward-looking, and, and rather than be in a situation where he had to beg or he had to do hard labor, he was able to put himself in a position where he was looked after because of his forward-looking. And so, so the idea here is we need to see that the world is going to change and that the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of Christ. And that means the world is going to be turned, it, the world is upside down right now. It's going to be turned right side up. And those who are at the top are going to be at the bottom. All the rich and powerful are going to be, all that wealth is going to be taken from them. And those who are at the bottom, the poor, are going to be exalted. And, and so it's going to be a new, there's going to be a new setup. And so Christ is saying, look after the poor, because these are the future kings. And in the kingdom, you want to set yourself up in such a way that you are looked after in the future world, not just this world. And so this, is, this, this was the lesson, to, to have that insight and that foresight to, to, to set yourself up. Because if you are trying to serve two masters, 
you're going to hate one. And so just be very clear and, and be, be, be a disciple that puts Christ first and does what he says, and he says, look after the poor. So that, that was uh, Luke 16. I think, uh, Brother Stephen, you were going to make a comment. Uh, yes, I was. Um, the lesson aside that Jesus was trying to portray from the parable, um, we seem to suggest that Jesus was commending someone who was doing something that was um, not right. Yes. They comment, yeah, so uh, some friends will take issue with this particular parable. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the again, it's a made-up story to say that in this situation, the, the 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 master of that steward was amazed because he came to really punish the steward and fire him, and in his mind, the steward was going to be impoverished uh, or have a, a life of hard labor. And when he found out what the steward did, it was like, wow, you are very very shrewd. And so he's really just taking that as a, a point of a point of teaching to say why the master was commending the steward was he had this foresight. He could see that his world was going to change, that this, this master was no longer his master. He was not conflicted. He didn't try to serve the master that was going to fire him. He, he, instead, he looked into the future. And so this is really the lesson to the, to the disciples and to us by extension, is that all of the masters in this world... They're not going to be our masters anymore. And so rather than living our life to try to please them, when they're, they're disappearing, we need to be very clear about the future kingdom and so into the kingdom. So it's really, it's a made-up story to bring out this one lesson. Okay. Like to him, much is given, much is required. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So how, how do we use the wealth of this world and some people who are wealthy are seduced by their wealth. He has another place where he gives the analogy of the person who is so wealthy that what he says is, I'm going to build bigger barns for myself. And then God says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And so, you know, people who have wealth in this world, if they are just spending it on themselves and looking after themselves, they are really, really foolish because this world is passing away. And that, that's exactly what he said. That's exactly the lesson. And, and again, going back to Luke 1, with the prophecy, it's very clear that the exalted are going to be brought down. And the yeah. poor are going to be exalted. And God said that anybody who is honored by men in this life is an abomination to God. So he's trying to, he's really teaching these stories so that the disciples will see the world through these... In a sense, these stories are like a pair of eyeglasses. And we see the world through these eyeglasses, through, through the lens of these eyeglasses. So, so Christ is telling these stories so that the disciples will see the world differently and not see what everybody else sees. Send is a very sensitive teaching, uh, Brother Stephen and Sister Abanel, in verse 18 of Luke 16, and we tend to shy away from it. But Christ is very clear that if a man is married and he divorces his wife, and then and the wife is still alive, and he goes and marries another woman, Christ is saying he's living in adultery. 
thoughts, comments on this in terms of our society and shying away from this teaching? And it is a sensitive topic because many people have found themselves in this situation. But of course, God accepts repentance. But what are your thoughts or comments on this? Um, yes, I have a question on that. Um, what about the woman if a man marries her that was put in me? Yeah, in fact, Christ actually addresses that very situation, that whoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. So, what about her? Would she yeah, she's her? committing adultery as well, absolutely. Absolutely. So unless, it's different though if the spouse dies. So until death do us part, that when a spouse dies, then the, the, the living spouse, whoever survives, is free to remarry. But as long but as they're um, in his word, um, he mentioned I can't remember in which chapter the call of fornication. In other words, that if this man fornicated yes. in adultery, the woman can get married again. Yes, and, and vice versa. So yeah, that that is that, so yeah. There are exceptions to. Uh, to, there, there are legitimate reasons for divorce, one of which Christ gives very clearly is a pornea, sexual immorality. So if a wife or a husband uh, commits sexual immorality, then that is a legitimate grounds for divorce. Yes, absolutely. Or another one we see in the New Testament, Paul teaches abandonment. That if a spouse abandons, if, if you're abandoned by your spouse, then Paul says, yes, you can you can remarry. So there are there are exceptions. Yes, so if they're both guilty of immorality, um, what happens to both of them? They should both remain single or they can get married again? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. So uh, in Christ says that if your spouse commits immorality, then you're free to, to divorce and, and remarry. But uh, here now, you're saying they both commit immorality. I, I, I don't even know what to do with that. I think they're both immoral people, and they uh, really should not remarry. I don't know, Brother Stephen, if you have any thoughts or comments on that one. Uh, interesting, we were having a similar discussion last week in a Bible study, and someone brought up a scenario, um, not dissimilar, not too dissimilar from what my sister here has raised, what is the guilty party is um, repentant, then is it still grounds for divorce? Uh, the party will agree, the party will, um, the innocent party, and they still have to go ahead um, to, to forcefully divorce the party, even though they are, are repentant. So there's so, quite a bit of yeah, let me make sure, let me make sure I understand. Let me make sure. Sorry, let me make sure I understand the situation that you raised there, Brother Stephen. So there's a, a man and his wife, and let's say the man is uh, unfaithful, and so the, the 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 wife now wants divorce, but the man is repentant. The man now says he's sorry, he won't do it again, and the, but the wife insists she still wants the divorce. That's the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So what what were what were the conclusions of that discussion then? Well, of course, so you know, that, 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 that,
another one for consideration. We were not able to reach a conclusion. Some of the opinion that um, going back to um, what Jesus has said, this is not, this was really not intended to be so in the beginning. Yes. And that, of course, um, Jesus, um, teach what Jesus central teaching is about forgiveness and how we have, um, this that we have how much time what they forgive. And we basically, you know, no, saying that we should, we should, we should forgive 70 times 7. So the question is, um, does that also apply in the situation um, with, with the poor? Or is one act sufficient to dissolve um, a marriage over? I think it's, 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 I think we have to look case by case. Certainly Matthew 5, verse 31, it says, It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So this is Matthew 5, verse 31. But I say unto you, that whoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of porneia, which is sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So if you divorce a woman and she remarries, you are committing adultery with the remarried woman, unless she was divorced because of sexual immorality, in which case then she's free to be divorced and you're not committing adultery. So I think that's that's the law that Christ has laid down now. If someone, you know, they've built a life together, they've been married for 25 years, and then this thing happens, and then they're able to see their way, certainly we would counsel them to try to stay together. And if they could, wonderful. But certainly from what Christ has laid down here, that if the woman says, no, I can no longer trust, and I'm going to go through with the divorce, from what Christ has laid down here, she is not going to be committing adultery if she remarries. And so that's, that's, that's what Christ has laid down. Now, whether there's mercy and forgiveness, and this is now another conversation we can have, but first we need to, esta- yeah. first we need to establish that she's not committing adultery. Yeah. 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 Uh, for some people, that's a very sensitive topic. Very, very. And for some people, people are so curious and they ask questions. And most um, religious um, leaders don't have the answer. <laughs> yeah. I have discovered. But, um, yeah, that was a very good answer, Yeah, we cannot, we cannot shy away from the Word of God. And so, you know, we have to conform to the Word of God. And so let's, let's say the Word of, we, we believe the Word of God is true. Let's now conform to it. But very good. I really appreciate uh, both of you being on the line. And so we're just coming up to our time. Any final thoughts or comments in the last minute or so that we have? Yeah, I have one question regarding people that are not in um, a big brother from Jamaica that called, um, he called the same number that I call mm-hmm. to get on the contract. Yes, that's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. so I can give that same number to, to others. Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, because they were asking. And yeah. Brother Stephen does that as well. He has a number of people in Jamaica that will join us from time to time. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. Very good. Uh, Brother Stephen, a final comment from you or thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to further studies and just going to and see how Jesus continues to build upon um, this, this extensive teaching because it's yeah. so easy to be caught in the, in the 
trust of um, hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good. Excellent, excellent. Brother, sister, thank you so much for joining. And those out there in Radio Land, thank you so much for joining us. Tell your friends, tell your pastor. Uh, let's go through the Word of God line by line, here a little, there a little. Next week, God willing, we'll get into Luke chapter 17, where Christ teaches this uh, that it's better to have a millstone around your neck than that you should offend one of these little ones. We're going to unpack what that means. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, God bless. God bless you, and thank God for you. Praise God. All right, well, Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.